Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And now I make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, good morning, church. Go ahead, and if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's where we're going to be starting this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, And this morning, we are continuing as well as concluding our Advent series um, called Jesus the True and Better. And so you see, Advent is the season leading up to Christmas, and it ends on Christmas Eve today. Um, And the word Advent means arrival. In this season of Advent, we are anticipating and looking forward to Jesus' arrival. And so in many ways, during this season leading up to Christmas, uh, we are remembering and we are reenacting Jesus' first arrival when God put on flesh and was born in Bethlehem. But it is also a season that we are longing for and anticipating his second advent, his second arrival, when Jesus returns to restore all things. And the phrase that we've been using here uh, this month is that we wanted this Christmas season to be a true and better Christmas season, meaning that most often our Christmas seasons um, are so busy and full and often take, we are, our time is taken up and we are distracted by all the wrong advents or arrivals instead of being captivated by the advent or the arrival of Christ. 
And so the way that we have been, by God's grace, attempting to have been captivated by Christ this season is that we've been looking back through the Old Testament and we've been looking back through some people in the Old Testament and how they were foreshadowing and how they were pointing us to Jesus's arrival. And so three weeks ago, we talked about Adam and we talked about how Jesus is the true and better Adam and how we saw shadows and glimpses through Adam's life that was pointing us to the arrival of Jesus. And we celebrated and enjoyed that what was lost in the garden was won back by Jesus. And then two weeks ago, we looked at Abraham, and like Tim Keller said in that uh, video, we saw that how Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. And then last week, we looked at Moses, and we saw how God used Moses as a rescuer, as a communicator, and then as a mediator for God's people. And we saw how Jesus is the true and better rescuer, that Jesus is the true and better communicator, and Jesus is our true and better mediator. And now this morning, we're going to look at David. And again, not a comprehensive study on David, but we're going to look at how David's life was anticipating the advent of Jesus how his life was pointing to and giving us shadows and glimpses of the arrival of Jesus. And so specifically, we're going to look at how God used David as a shepherd, how God used David as a warrior, and how God used David as a king. And then we will look at how Jesus is the true and better shepherd. Jesus is the true and better warrior. Jesus is the true and better king. So let's pray, and then we will jump into our passage. God, you are holy, holy, holy. And we marvel at the fact that we can come into your presence this morning. And God, we know that it is only because of Jesus that we can celebrate and enjoy and be in your presence. And so we thank you for coming to earth, for putting on flesh to dwell amongst us, to live with us, to die for us. So God, may we, may we celebrate that, but may we actually tangibly feel the weight of that this morning. God, I ask that you would speak to us through your word. I ask that you would give me clarity in how I articulate your truth God, I ask that it would convict those that need to be convicted, that it would encourage those that need to be encouraged, that it would refresh those that need to be refreshed, and God, ultimately, may it transform all of us to be more and more like you. So God, may you attend with power your word and your truth that goes forth this morning, and we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. We'll have it up on the screen as well. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Now, some of you, when you think of David, you might first think of King David. Or some of you, when you think of David, you might think of David as a warrior. You might think of the story of David and Goliath. And we're certainly, we're going to talk about David as king, David as warrior, but we need to first start with his humble beginnings and look at David the shepherd. 
You see, David was the youngest of eight brothers, so that means he probably grew up getting plenty of swirlies and wedgies, okay? He was the youngest. He was the low man on the totem pole, and so he often got left out of things uh, because someone had to watch the sheep. So as his brothers went to do battle or do more important things, David was often left watching the sheep. After all, sheep are not the brightest of animals, and they need a shepherd to be constantly looking after them. You see, sheep always need to be watched because sheep are dumb, okay? Now, you shouldn't call many things dumb. That's not polite. That's nice, but it's okay with sheep because sheep are dumb, okay? And there was a story I read of these shepherds uh, in Turkey, and they were eating their breakfast and just allowing their flock to kind of just wander around and kind of free-range, you know, that, that technique. They must have saw how free-range chickens were doing so well. They just kind of let their sheep just go, and they were eating breakfast and watching. And from afar, they saw one of their sheep go to the edge of a cliff and jump off, okay? Now, we don't know the backstory behind this sheep. We don't know if he was just getting bored or looking for a little adventure in life. Uh, We don't know if he got dared to go do that, okay? But what we do know is how the rest of the sheep responded, Nearly 1,500 sheep saw this one sheep jump and just assumed that it was what they were supposed to do. And so all 1,500 sheep followed this sheep and jumped off the cliff. So we can assume if a parent sheep would ask their teenager sheep if their friends jumped off a bridge, would they jump too? We can assume the answer was always yes, they would, okay? So all 1,500 sheep jump off the cliff, and just like that, the shepherds have lost about over $100,000, okay, after losing all their sheep jumping off the cliff. Um, now, hopefully it was a good breakfast, right, because they were eating breakfast, Hopefully it was like a Waffle House breakfast or something like that. If it was, it was totally worth it, okay? Now, not only are sheep sort of dumb, but they also have no sense of direction, okay? Like some of you, I assume if you did not have GPS on your phone, you might be worried about how you were going to get home after church, okay? Um, But you see, sheep are prone to wander, They are prone to wander. They like to test the boundaries and wander away from the flock, And it's especially scary for sheep to wander because sheep also cannot defend themselves. I mean, think about it. Most any other animal you could put out into the wild, and they would probably learn some defensive strategies or ways to protect themselves, or they could at least run fast enough to get away from danger, but not sheep. They cannot fight, and they cannot run. And in a a book I was reading called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, Uh, The author, Philip Keller, who was born in East Africa, he actually was a shepherd growing up, he writes this. He says, sheep do not just take care of, excuse me, sheep do not just take care of themselves as some might suppose. They require more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. It is no accident that God has chosen to call us sheep. The behavior of sheep and human beings is similar in many ways. Yet despite these characteristics, Christ chooses us, buys us, calls us by name, makes us his own, and delights in in caring for us. David was a shepherd who started out looking after sheep, and one day he was entrusted with looking after God's people. And David the shepherd then introduces us to our true and better shepherd in Psalm 23, a psalm that many of you are familiar with. 
It's a very popular and well-known psalm. It's a psalm of David. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I was reading a story from missionaries who were observing a shepherd with his sheep. And it was during a conflict where there was some gunfire and there was some explosions going on. And they were watching this shepherd and his sheep. And every time gunfire or an explosion would happen, the sheep would all startle and start to panic and kind of start to run in circles. And then what would the shepherd do? The shepherd would take his staff and just lovingly and gently tap each sheep to remind him that he was there and it would calm them down and they would be at peace. And then another explosion and they would panic again and run around and the shepherd just lovingly with his staff would remind the sheep that he was there. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The imagery of the Lord being our shepherd is, is not a flattering thing for us, okay? It's not like, oh, we're just such cute, cuddly little sheep, and we're so awesome. Of course God loves us and takes care of us. No, to say that the Lord is our shepherd to say that the Lord is my shepherd, that means you are humbling yourself. To say that the Lord is my shepherd is to humble yourself and to own up that we are stubborn, that we are prone to wander, that we can't protect ourselves, that we are helpless. But also to say that the Lord is our shepherd is to glory and exult in the greatness and the goodness of our shepherd. And we see Jesus use this same imagery in John 10. He says in John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So shepherds typically, at the end of the day, bring their flocks home around dusk, and they bring them from various pastures, usually to a common watering hole. And so you could have about eight to ten shepherds with eight to, diff at eight to ten different flocks that all gather around the same watering hole as the shepherds are bringing them back in. Now, if you don't know much about shepherding or much about sheep, like myself, right, that could actually very much stress me out. Like, all these, all these different flocks coming together and congregating, they start intermixing. How in the world am I going to keep track of who's my sheep and who's your sheep? And, and even if I could maybe identify them, you know, put a mark on them or something, it seems like it would be really difficult at the end of the day to try to then separate them all back out. 
Like it seems like that would be a lot of extra work. Like at the end of all the sheep getting their drink of water for the shepherds to go through and say, okay, no, this is yours, this is mine, this is yours, and trying to you know, separate and divvy them all back up. So for me, if I was envisioning and if I was witnessing this encounter where all the flocks come together, I would sort of be stressed out. Well, my stress would be relieved when I observed what happens once the sheep are done getting their drink of water. When it is time to go home, each shepherd issues their own distinct call or whistle, and the sheep leave the watering hole and follow their own shepherd home. The sheep know who they belong to, and they know their shepherd's voice. And it is the only one that they will follow. And church, I love listening to and hearing your testimonies and your stories about how God has led you to himself. And the beautiful thing about the church is that the people of God, we are not a people of uniformity, but we are a people of diversity that all have very different backgrounds and upbringings. And God has worked in different ways in all of our lives. And so we each have a unique story. Some were raised in church, some were not. Some have been following Jesus their whole life. Some just, just this past year started following Jesus. And everyone's story is beautiful and unique. It's not like there's a simple equation that makes a Christian, right? There's not just like a formula that you follow, like you do this certain thing, you read this book, you sprinkle in this sermon, uh, you listen to this Casting Crown song a thousand times on the radio, and then boom, like that equals a Christian. Like that's not, there's no common formula or equation that makes a Christian. All of our stories are incredibly different and unique. But when you, when you listen to one another's story, you do need to recognize and celebrate and worship God that there is a common denominator in the midst of all of our stories and all of our testimonies, and it's this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And praise God that whatever he has brought you through to bring you to faith in Christ, praise God for the diverse and the unique stories that we all have. And I hope that as you look back at your story and as you look back on your testimony, you can praise God that through all the good things and through all the bad things, there was a good shepherd that was calling you. You didn't come to faith in Christ because you figured it out or because you're more enlightened than anyone else. No, the good shepherd was calling. And maybe some of you this morning, maybe there are some who are not following Jesus, but there's been this pulling on your soul. There's been this stirring in your heart. There's been this obsession in your mind that there has to be more. There has to be something that you are being called to, that there is this longing in your life that maybe you haven't even experienced or realized until this morning. But listen, you need to hear me say that I love you, and that is not your conscience, and that is not the universe speaking to you. That is Jesus, the good shepherd, calling and when you hear his voice, do not turn from him or refuse him, but follow him. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand.
Because Jesus is the true and better shepherd, we do not need to fear danger. We do not have to be self-reliant. And we are eternally secure, not because of how awesome us sheep are, but because of the greatness and the goodness of our good shepherd, Jesus. We'll look back at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now verse 9. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Well, one of the most famous and well-known stories about David is David and Goliath. I'm sure even if you haven't grown up in church, you're probably at least familiar with that phrasing or that name, David and Goliath. Uh, David and Goliath has been talked about a lot, and it is overused in a lot of different situations. Uh, so many sports team chaplains, right? If you're, going, if you're the underdog in a game and you're going up against someone that's way better than you, you probably got a pep talk about David and Goliath, right? Uh, or many of you have probably heard messages about David and Goliath that give you the, the courage and the strength and the faith to go face your own giants and do battle and slay the own, your own giants in your life. And so listen, listen, here's the story. A quick recap. Little shepherd boy David goes to visit his older brothers who are on the battle line, uh, Israel, the Israelites versus the Philistines. And one of the Philistines was this huge dude named Goliath who came out before the Israelites and challenged one of them to come fight him one-on-one, okay? He called out to the people of God and said if there was one warrior amongst them who could defeat him, then the whole Philistine army would be their servants. So listen, he was saying there needed to be one warrior If one warrior would be victorious, that victory would be spread to all the people. And here was Goliath, who was slandering and speaking out against God and his people. And David, while he was visiting his brothers, heard it. And he went and said to King Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go fight with this Philistine. And so then listen to this story here in 1 Samuel 17, verse 44. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And then you know the story. David took a stone, put it in a sling, launched it toward Goliath's head, struck him in the forehead, went to the ground, went and took Goliath's sword and defeated him and took off his head. And so, through one man's victory, all of God's people were victorious. Through one man's victory, all of God's people were victorious. Now, it's easy to read that story, and it's easy to read stories in the Old Testament and jump right away into application for our own lives, right? So it would be easy for me to say, okay, now go be like David. Go be courageous. Go have faith in God. Go defeat the giants in your life. Go defeat the giant of lust or greed or gluttony. Go defeat them. You can do it. Be like David. And listen, those all sound inspiring, and I could probably hype you up and get you feeling temporarily empowered to go do that. They would probably, and those those topics could probably be best sellers, right, in the Christian bookstore. But you see, that is not the main point of this passage. 
So we need to first interpret this passage correctly and see who the true hero in the story really is. You see, we misinterpret scriptures when we identify ourselves as the hero in the story. And we do this. Humanity, we do this all the time. When reading a story, well, we just kind of relate with and assume that we are the hero in the story, right? We want to identify ourselves with the hero in the story. But when we do this, we are at risk of misinterpreting or misunderstanding a majority of the Bible because we are not the hero in the story. Now, certainly, we can apply some of David's qualities to our life, and we can desire to have his courage and have his faith, and I'm not saying that those are bad things to try to emulate your life after, but that's not what we have to go to first, okay? What we first need to take away is how this is pointing to the true and better David who was to come. You see, Jesus is the true and better David. You are not the true and better David. Jesus is the hero of the story. You are not the hero of the story. So if you want to identify or relate with someone in this story, I would say you and I are more like David's cowardly brothers who stood on the sideline and had their hero's victory credited to them but did nothing to accomplish it. Jesus is the hero, and in the same way that David defeated Goliath, Jesus came to defeat our ultimate enemies. He went to the cross to defeat Satan's sin and death, and his victory has become our victory. The victory of one warrior has been credited to all of God's people. You have to see Jesus first in the passage, and then you can make application for your own life. So our greatest enemies, our giants, are Satan, sin, and death. And the Bible says that we have all sinned, meaning we have all rebelled. We have all fallen short of God. And that the penalty for that sin is death. So that's the bad news, right? And then the good news is that warrior Jesus, through his death on a cross and resurrection, has defeated Satan, sin, and death. He has defeated our ultimate enemy, our ultimate giants. And now, because of his victory, now we can have the courage and the faith to go face the lesser giants that might be in our life. But we can only face these lesser giants because Jesus was victorious over our ultimate giants of Satan, sin, and death. I mean, think about it. If Jesus conquered death, if Jesus conquered death, if Jesus rescued you from sin, if Jesus has pulled you from the kingdom of darkness, then what do you and I have to fear in life? We can live fearlessly in life, not because we are David, but because Jesus is David and has taken out our Goliath. So in the same way to say that Jesus is the true and better shepherd, is to admit and confess that we are helpless and lost without him. To say that Jesus is the true and better warrior is to admit that there is a battle that we cannot win in our own strength. And so trusting and following Jesus does give us courage and faith and fearlessness because we can rest and trust in Jesus, our true and better warrior, whose victory has been credited to our, us. So look back at 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7, now in verse 10. 
And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, David then did become King David, and God then told him that he would establish his kingdom forever. And while David, in many ways, he was a good king, he was certainly not a perfect king, and he had his fair share of sin and mistakes. And so there needed to be a true and better king that would come after him. And God promises David that one of his descendants would be a true and better king who would rule and reign in perfect righteousness forever. And here is where we need to understand that Jesus is the true and better king whose kingdom will not end. So hear these words from Luke chapter 1. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, turn with me now, if you do have your Bibles, to Matthew 2. Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to finish this morning. I realize it is Christmas Eve, and some of you might riot or protest if we do not get to baby Jesus in Bethlehem. So here we go. Matthew 2, we're, we're getting there. Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which Bethlehem is called the city of David, and so it is David's old hometown. It should be reminding you of the promises that God made in 2 Samuel, as well as Luke 1 that we just read. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod uh, the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the, little, the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
So the wise men are warned not to return to King Herod because King Herod did not really want to come worship Jesus, but he instead wanted to kill Jesus. And so the wise men depart a different direction. Now, over the last couple of days, my family, we've been celebrating uh, Christmas with mom and dad and and my sister and her family. And uh, one of the things that we've been doing that has become now a yearly tradition is that we will reenact, we will dress up and reenact the Christmas story. Uh, So mom has no shortage of dress up clothes. We will all put on like old graduation robes and really ugly, you know, scary wigs and whatnot. And and people will pick their parts if they want to be shepherds or wise men or angels or whatnot. Um, Britt keeps getting pregnant so that she can play the part of Mary, um, and that sort of then locks me in as Joseph for a while, so I've been really, you know, really trying to get that part down of Joseph, uh, and then the kids, they have fun, right, trying to pick, oh, they're going to be shepherds or wise men or angels or sheep or, uh, or, the, or a donkey or things like that, and so many times we'll have multiple parts to try to make this all work together, um, But do you know what character no one ever wants to be or no one volunteers for or no one even thinks about? King Herod. King Herod. And do you know who I think we actually could relate to most in the story? I think it's King Herod, and let me, let me explain that, okay? Why, why would I say that? I know many of you would like to assume that you would react like the wise men and the shepherds did to the announcement of a new king, but I think we often act and respond like King Herod did. Because you see, King Herod considered himself to be king of the Jews. He considered himself to have control and sovereignty over that region, King Herod felt threatened. He didn't like the idea of someone other than himself being king and someone other than himself being in control. King Herod wanted control. He wanted people to bow down to him. He wanted wise men to travel from afar to bring him gifts. But contrast how Herod responded to how the wise men responded. They responded with joy and worship. They responded with joy and worship. They went and bowed down and they worshiped and they had great joy to celebrate this new king and they had great joy to bring him gifts. The wise men, in contrast with Herod, responded with joy and they responded with worship. And look at some of the gifts that are given. Now, these aren't gifts that are being given as if Jesus needed them. It would have been an insult in those days to bring royalty a gift as if they needed a gift. Okay, But these were gifts of worship, meaning that as the wise men gave them, they were treasuring Jesus above these gifts. And so they gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And gold, gold should remind you of Jesus' royalty. All throughout the scripture, gold is associated with royalty. So it was them recognizing Jesus as being royal, as being a king. And then frankincense was emphasizing his deity. Frankincense was often used in making sacrifices or offerings to God. And so it was stored in the chamber of the sanctuary. So frankincense was pointing to Jesus, his deity, his his being fully God. And then myrrh was emphasizing his humanity. Frankincense was associated with God. Myrrh was associated with anointing men. And myrrh was also pointing to the cross and Jesus' death, because when Jesus was on the cross, it says in Mark 15 that they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And then myrrh was also what was used to prepare Jesus' body for burial after his death. So we see even at Jesus' birth, 
we must also look to and celebrate his death. Because our good shepherd warrior king knew that there was a fight that we couldn't win on our own. And so he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and he rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death, and he is now ruling, reigning, and restoring all things and calling a people to himself. And so in this story, we see two very different responses to the announcement of King Jesus. We see two very different reactions to the announcement that there is a new king. We see Herod, who does everything in his power to try to hang on to control, all right? And maybe some of you can maybe relate with that this morning. You've done everything you can in your power to try to hold on to the control of your own life. And then we see the second way to respond from the wise men, who respond with joy and worship and glad submission to the new king. You see, the reason that I can say we can all relate to Herod is because we have all tried to be king. We have tried to be the Lord of our own lives. We have tried to rule and reign and control our own lives, and it often wasn't until the grace of God allowed some hardship, pain, or turmoil, or whatever else to wake us up and to show us that we were lousy kings. And that whatever control we thought we had was just a delusion or a figment of our imagination. You see, we, you and I, until we have encountered Jesus and experienced just how good he is, we fight to keep control. We want to hang on to our little kingdoms. And we want sovereignty over our own lives. And we'll fight and we'll lie and we'll deceive and we'll manipulate to try to keep control of our kingdoms. But then God opens our eyes. He puts a star in the sky. He turns on the light in our hearts. And we see Jesus as the true king. And we saw that Jesus was a way better king than we could have ever have tried to be. We saw that Jesus from Philippians 2, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so now we don't have to respond like King Herod did. We don't have to try to cling on to control But we can respond to Jesus' kingship now like the wise men did, with great joy and worship and glad submission. For we know that Jesus does not rule and reign like many kings on earth who are tyrants or dictators, but we know that he rules and reigns like a good shepherd and a victorious warrior who fights on his people's behalf. And so when you bow down to Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, there is so much freedom and joy in that. Because when you can say that Jesus is king, you are saying that you are not. 
And that is a freeing, life-giving thing to be able to say that Jesus is king, I am not. You do not have absolute control or sovereignty, and that was never a weight that you were supposed to carry. You can now rest and enjoy living in the kingdom of God rather than fighting for and clinging to your own little kingdom. You see, Jesus, just like this season of Advent has been looking forward to and anticipating Jesus' arrival, in many ways our whole life before Christ was a season of Advent. Whether you realized it or not, the good shepherd has been calling you Your soul has been groaning for and longing for the joy and rest that is found in Jesus' presence alone. And that groaning, that longing for something more, that is evidence of God's grace in your life. That is evidence that God is working. That is evidence of God's grace that you feel that, that emptiness or that longing or that pulling or that tugging on your heart. It is the grace of God that you are restless so that you will find your perfect rest in God. It is the grace of God that you are insecure so that you will find your perfect security in our God who is a mighty fortress. It is the grace of God that you are anxious so yet you will find the one who calmed the sea. It is the grace of God that you are seeking approval so that you will find your ultimate approval in the righteousness of Christ. It is the grace of God that you desire to be known and to be loved so that you would find God who knows you more than anyone else knows you and also loves you more than anyone else loves you. It is the grace of God that we seek after beauty so that we might find the one whose glory the heavens declare. It is the grace of God that you are unfulfilled in your pursuit of riches so that you will find fulfillment in the riches of God's grace. And it is the grace of God that you often feel defeated so that you might find your ultimate victory in Christ's victory. And it is the grace of God that you are discontent with your little kingdom so that you will find the fullness of joy of being a citizen of God's kingdom. It has been by the grace of God that your whole life has been a journey that has been pointing you to and preparing you for the joy of being in Jesus' presence. The road you have walked is a road that leads to Bethlehem to behold Jesus, the true and better shepherd. Jesus, the true and better warrior, and Jesus, the true and better king. Church, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, this is good news. And we celebrate that Jesus, you are the true and better King of kings and Lord of lords. God, forgive me and forgive us for clinging to the control of our own kingdoms we've been building. God, I ask that we might experience the joy of gladly submitting to you as king.
and treasuring you above all else. I thank you that we have been restless until we have found our rest in you. And God, if there are those that don't know you this morning, I ask that you would continue to pull and stir in their hearts that you might shine the light of truth and that they might see that you are the true king. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.